Well, there is so much to love in this world, isn't there? So many wonderful gifts God has given to us. If you can recall the first chapters of the Bible, God created the world filled with His goodness for us to enjoy. One of the first gifts He gives in Genesis is the gift to mankind of the companionship of marriage. He gives family, parents, siblings, children. He gives us a place to call our own land and homes. He gives us the capacity to rule in His creation, dominion over the world He has made for us. And when He was done, He called it all very good. So much to love in the world. But then the Bible also says, do not love the world or the things of the world. All these God-given gifts with the warning, do not love them. Do you know, saints, as good as these gifts are, and 10,000 like them, meant to be enjoyed, there is a danger in loving them. There is a danger in loving the world in the place of God. Christians have called this worldliness, loving the, the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. It is a, a whole different set of values. What is most valuable and therefore what, what we must do in order to attain what is valuable. It is in our nature to seek blessing. You and I, we, we seek the things that we think will create in our lives happiness and purpose. And so the question for us is where can we find a true blessing, lasting happiness and purpose? Well, that is in fact the theme of our passage this morning. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 36. Genesis chapter 36. As you turn there, let me introduce myself. My name is Kelton. I have the, the privilege of serving as one of the pastors of Stafford Baptist Church. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the Black Pew Bibles provided for you, and you'll find our passage, Genesis 36, on page 30. And in fact, if you, if you don't own a Bible or need a Bible to give it away to a friend, feel free to take that Pew Bible as our gift to you. Our passage this morning, Genesis 36, is the family tree of Esau. He's the twin brother of, of Jacob, both sons of Isaac, grandsons of Abraham. And this chapter shows how Esau sought blessings by pursuing what he valued most in the world. We'll see him pursue wives and land, children and dominion. And it serves for us as a tragic warning of the quick but empty promises of the love of the world. So as you can tell, we return this morning to our, our sermon series in, in the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. This book tells the origin of all things, the world, mankind, all good and evil. But the, the blessings that we just considered that God created the world with, especially unhindered relationship with Him, have been marred by mankind's fall into sin. And now, as Moses records history in this book of Genesis, he's showing how God is at work restoring blessing to the world He made and particularly through one family, Abraham and his children. And we come this morning to a unique passage in, in Genesis, in the family tree of Esau. There's no sense in pretending otherwise. It's one of the passages we're often tempted to skim past when reading through the Bible. But saints, even, even this list is God-inspired scripture. It was relevant to the people Moses wrote to, but it is also relevant to, to all Christians in, in every age. It is the timeless tale of the, the vanity, the emptiness of worldliness, uh, 
the quick and easy blessings of the world apart from God. Blessings that we find are gone quicker than they even come. Our passage this morning, Genesis 36, 1 through 37, 1, blessings dead end. Blessings dead end. Now, normally I wait until after the reading to give you the main idea and outline, but because of the unique nature of our passage, I'm not going to attempt to read it all at once for you this morning. I'll be honest, I listened to this passage in the car when, when Walker was with me, and she asked me if they were speaking Spanish. It's the only foreign language she knows. There are a lot of unfamiliar names in this passage. So we're going to split it up into five shorter sections to give our attention a break. And to start with what is the, the point of the whole passage? What is the purpose of this list of Esau's descendants? Well, I think it shows us, the church in every age, this. The promise of worldliness is prosperity without God's presence. The promise of worldliness is prosperity without God's presence. I pray as we work through this record of Esau's family that we will see the the love of the world for what it is, fleeting and empty. The promise of worldliness is prosperity without God's presence. As I said, we'll work through this passage in five points. Five points this morning. First, worldly partners. Second, worldly place. Third, worldly parents. Fourth, worldly power. And finally, heavenly prosperity. Worldly partners, worldly place, worldly parents, worldly power, and concluding with heavenly prosperity. Well, we'll begin by reading the first five verses in just a moment, but be, before we do, far more important than outlines and, and main ideas is in reading this scripture, the Spirit's help. So please pray with me for God's help in our reading and understanding of his word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have sung with our hearts this morning, proclaimed with our lips that great is your faithfulness. Father, your faithfulness is even to the undeserving, even to those who spurn your promises. Father, I pray that this morning we would see and know your faithfulness that is even for us. So, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Revive our hearts, Lord, to love you and to turn away from the false promises of this world. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Read with me Genesis 36, starting in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Ohalabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basimath bore Reuel, and Ohalabama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. The word of the Lord. Well, our, our first point from these verses, brothers and sisters, worldly partners. Worldly partners. Well, the first verse we have here, Genesis 36, 1, should feel familiar to you if you've been with us in our study in the book of Genesis. That phrase, these are the generations of, pops up regularly in the book of Genesis. We ran into the first one way back in Genesis 2-4. We've already seen seven others, so this is the ninth in the book. This is Moses' version of a chapter marker, right? The chapters are later editions to help us navigate the book, but, but when Moses wrote it, this is his signal to the reader that we're moving on to another major development in his record in Genesis. And he does this by recording genealogies, the generations This ninth chapter that we read today is about Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. You might recall before the two were even born, God told their mother 
that the line of God's promise would go through one and not the other, Jacob, known as Israel, and not the character of our chapter, Esau. You can consider the book of Genesis something like a tree, a family tree for the nation of Israel, Jacob's descendants. It begins at the top with God and his son Adam and Adam's wife Eve. And among all the branches, the trunk has come down to Jacob. But God is evidently, by the record in Genesis 36, interested in the other branches the branch here of Esau and his family. And we notice quickly that this offshoot splits into three. In verses two and three, we see Esau has three wives. And from those three wives, the rest of our verses, verses four and five, record that he had five sons. Now certainly none of what we read here in these first five verses is out of the ordinary Jacob, his brother, had four wives, 12 sons. So what is distinctive about these verses? Well, if you, if you write in your Bibles, I would suggest you underline that word in verse 2, Canaanites. He goes on to say, Moses records that his first wife is from the Hittites, his second from the Hivites. Those are both from the tribes, the families of the Canaanites though his third wife is not from among the Canaanites. I'm sure you can piece this together. The Canaanites are the descendants of Canaan. And this takes us all the way back to to Genesis 9, when Canaan was cursed by Noah. Canaan was cursed in in Genesis 9, 21, to serve his brothers. But but more than that, the Canaanites were residents of the land that God had promised to, to Abraham and his children. God promised that that his family, the family of promise, would one day remove the Canaanites from the land. In other words, the Canaanites were not to inherit God's promise. So to marry Canaanites, as Esau is doing here, was to ensure that your children and the nation were excluded from the promise of God. Do you remember how hard Abraham worked to get a wife for his son Isaac, sending his servant on that harrowing journey, blessed by God to find Rebekah. His brother, Esau's brother Jacob, also went back to the land of his father to find his wives. All that to avoid what Esau does intentionally here, taking wives from the cursed Canaanites. When Esau first married Canaanite wives back in Genesis 26, it says they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. It seems that he did this out of spite to be antagonistic to his family. Friends, the decision who to marry reveals what you value most. Clearly, Esau showed none of the concern of his father or his brother for the promises of God. To, to be clear, it isn't about their ethnicity. This is about their worship. The Canaanites were idol worshipers. They had no love or loyalty to, to Yahweh, to God. Esau here is pursuing one of God's good gifts to all mankind, marriage, in the way of the world. He wanted the blessing of marriage without concern with what it meant for his relationship with God. Esau married these Canaanites because they they shared what he valued most. This is why the Bible commands that, that if Christians are to marry, it must only be with other Christians. We read earlier in our service from 2 Corinthians 6, where, where Paul says that we are to have no partnership with unbelievers. This is especially important in marriage because for those who marry, partnership with our spouses is where we live out our most core values, what we value most. But certainly our values, brothers and sisters, are reflected in so many of of the other commitments that we make, married or not. 
what house we buy, what jobs we take, what communities we live in. And the world has very different values for all of these kinds of commitments that will both reflect and shape your values. So I wonder, what do your most fundamental commitments reflect about what you most value? How is your job, where you live, who you live with, shaping your core values? Do you need to reassess some of these commitments in light of what is actually, truly valuable in the end? And frankly, these kinds of of fundamental commitments are hard to rearrange. That's why they're so important. But that's why the church is here, to, to process that with you in the wisdom of the community and give you help. Maybe this week, Reach out to a trusted brother or sister in the church and and ask them to pray and process with you as you consider your most fundamental commitments. But I do want to say something particularly about marriage. Some Christians are in marriages where they, they do not share their core values with their spouse. The Bible, as I said, calls on us to choose our spouse wisely because they they reflect and shape our core values. But frankly, that also means the opposite. We can put the shoe on the other foot. We have the opportunity to shape the core values of our spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, 12-14 calls us to stay in these marriages 1 Peter 3 calls on us to hope in God and and by our conduct aim to win our spouses even if they do not obey the word. So we can be encouraged. If we, sorry, if spouses have the, the power to influence us, that must mean that we also have the power to be the anti Canaanite influence in their lives. And who knows what, what God may do. Esau, though, shows no signs of being a godly influence in the lives of his wives. Instead, he leads his family to pursue the things of the world in a worldly place. Our second point in verses 6 through 8, worldly place. Our second point, worldly place. These next verses record Esau's choice to, to move his family out of the land promised to God's people. So read again with me, starting in verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Well, at first glance, Esau's choice here seems clearly practical. Esau chooses to move his his three wives, his five sons, daughters, servants, everything he owns to to leave Canaan. And it, it says he does this because their possessions were too great to dwell together. His sojournings in the land of Canaan must end. He must find a permanent home elsewhere. It just makes sense, right? Both Jacob and Esau need land for their livestock. You might recall that when Jacob returned from his, the country of his father, he, he comes to Esau in Seir. So the implication is that Esau had been traveling around with his herds in and out of Canaan. But it is here that he decides to leave and settle in Seir For good. You might have some warning bells going off. Ominously, this sounds a lot like what happened with Lot and Abraham back in Genesis 13, where there too the land could not support both of them dwelling together. You might remember Lot ends up moving into Sodom, and he integrates his family into the wicked people of that land. Here is the choice before Esau leave. So that I have land to sustain my wealth and maybe even grow it. 
or stay and suffer economic hardship. But it isn't any, any old land that Esau is on. This is the, the promised land. This is the land that his grandfather Abraham traveled hundreds of miles to see that he would inherit. This is the land that, that God told Abraham in, in Genesis twelve seven to your offspring, I will give this land. So in other words, the, the choice to abandon this land for the sake of material prosperity is the choice to abandon his hope in God's word and promise. He chooses to leave his brother behind, one through whom the blessings of God now come. Again, you remember, God promised to Abraham and his line, those that bless you, Abraham, I will bless. Blessing is now found in blessing Jacob as Isaac passes that promise to him. So the path to true blessing for Esau comes attached to God's line in Jacob, not in the land apart from Jacob. But Esau here makes the worldly choice. He is more interested, it seems, in the blessings that this world has to offer than anything to do with God, His Word, and His people. The text is so clear, motivated only by what is good for his pocketbook with no thought of God. That's often the way it works, saints. On the surface, this seems, we can agree, like a logical choice. It's a choice you and I might make without a second thought. But apostasy from the faith comes not with a bang but a whimper. It isn't one big decision one day. It is the end result of a thousand other little choices to pursue the things of this world. What we might consider small trade-offs for material prosperity. Brothers and sisters, are you making small trade-offs to gain the things of this world? Spending your time and money on what will not last and what will not help your soul. Let me remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. He tells us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And frankly, brothers and sisters, this truth should have an impact on where you reside, just like it did for Esau. We live in our day in a, a transient age. It's common for us to move for, for a job or to retire. So I think one very simple application from this passage even if it's for a raise or a promotion or for a lower cost of living, I think you should make sure, for example, there are good churches there before you make the decision to move. And I think you should be prepared wherever you move to prioritize what is best for your spiritual health, not your pocketbook. Brothers and sisters, just because that move or purchase or investment is practical... It just makes sense. doesn't mean you should do it. We don't operate with the same values of the world, gathering stuff and wealth. Esau's choice here to leave the promised land for the sake of material gain is more evidence that the promise of worldliness is prosperity without God's presence. He leaves that behind. And notice how Esau's choice here is his own. He leads his family and went into the land away from Jacob. As a parent, his choice impacts all the generations that follow him. And that's what we'll consider in our, our third section, our third point, verses 9 through 19, worldly parents. Our third point, worldly parents. If you're going to get lost in our reading today, it might be here. 
So I'm going to orient you before we read. Verses 9 through 14, what might be a paragraph in your Bible, repeats his five sons, but adds ten grandsons through two of his sons. You can see the conclusion of that paragraph, verse 14, repeats the three sons by his third wife. The heading there is particularly in verse 10. These are the names of Esau's sons. So that's that paragraph. The next paragraph, verses 15 through 19, repeat a similar list, but now noting that these grandsons and more have become 14 chiefs. Esau is the leader of 14 tribes. You can see this heading in verse 15. It says, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. So we have sons and chiefs, and this is all summed up for us again in verse 19. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. So our reading here is just summarizing all the sons and grandsons of Esau and the chiefs of his tribes. So read with me, starting in verse 9. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatim, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ahalabama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatim, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons, the chief Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ahalabama, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Ahalabama, the daughter of Ana, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Well, what we have here now then is three generations. Esau, his five sons, and his grandsons. This list might be wordy. Seems like it repeats itself too many times. But the implications are more brief. In the Old Testament, it mattered very much who your daddy was. But it wasn't enough. If you do the math, you can actually learn that, that Abraham was still alive when Jacob and Esau were born. He, in fact, died when, when Esau here was 15. So Esau, just like his brother Jacob, would have heard from the man himself how God called him, spoke to him from Ur of the Chaldeans to travel to the promised land. He himself would have heard of the years of enduring and faltering trust that they would receive the promised son, their dad. He heard from Abraham how God provided a substitute when he was told to sacrifice Isaac. But it doesn't matter who your grandfather or even father were. No one is born loyal to Yahweh, a believer. Belief is not something we inherit from our father, like these men inherited physical circumcision. Nor is it something passed on from generation to generation in our society. You cannot rely on worldly pedigree to receive blessings from God. God is no respecter of persons, giving anyone a pass because of your parents. Our Physical birth does not determine our spiritual life. We all need a new spiritual birth from above to see and enter the kingdom of heaven. What we need is not physical circumcision from our Father, but spiritual circumcision of the heart from the Father in heaven. 
But this passage also invites us to consider the opposite. As we read this, we see that it took two generations from Abraham to Esau to walk away from the Lord. Well, what about the opposite? We have two generations here. The story might be in reverse from Esau to his grandsons, the generation we read about here. For every Esau, is there a Jacob among his grandsons? Again, God is no respecter of persons. These grandsons have just as much opportunity to hear and believe in the saving promises of God, the God of Abraham. Just because their grandpa was Esau doesn't mean that they are to be reprobate with him. But what it requires is that each generation of God's people to be dedicated to announcing God's saving promises to the next. Psalm 78.4 We will not hide from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. In fact, this verse, Psalm 78 verse 4, is something of a a tagline for the purpose of the children's ministry of this church. It is not to babysit kids, but to, to work alongside parents to proclaim the gospel to the children of this church. In fact, serving in our children's ministry is one of the, the most needed and helpful ways you can serve this church. It blesses people you will never have a chance to meet, the generation that comes up after them. What we entrust to our children, only they will be in, able to entrust to the next generation. So kids, listen to me. It is a blessing that mom or dad or grandma or grandpa knows and loves Jesus. And it is our prayer that you too would come to love and trust Jesus who died for you too, for your sins. The the fact is, whether you are born to worldly or godly parents, each person needs to come to hear and believe the gospel of God so that they might receive salvation from themselves. Well, Esau's pursuit of worldly gain, though, continues to thrive in our next section. Our fourth point this morning, our fourth point, worldly power. Worldly power in verses 20 through 43. This takes us to the end of the chapter with only the first verse of chapter 37 left. Again, I think it's helpful to be oriented before we read. Now, instead of listing Esau's descendants, Moses is going to list the sons and grandsons of a man named Seir. Why is he important? Well, he is the namesake of the land that Esau is moving into. It was called Seir but will become Esau's nation known as Edom. And in fact, at least one of Esau's wives is from this this family. What we find in verses 20 through 30 is the list of Seir's seven sons, and then for each of those seven sons, their sons. In verses 31 through 39, we have a list of kings that reigned in Edom. What's particularly important for us to note is this is long before Jacob, known as Israel, has any kings to speak of. And then finally in 40 through 43, again, the chiefs of Esau listed, but now noting that the the land of Seir has become their possession. If I had to put this whole section in a sentence, it is this, that Esau has ascended to worldly power. Esau has ascended to worldly power. So let's start reading in verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemim, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, 
Aya and Ena. He is the Ena who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion his father. These are the children of Ena, Dishon and Ohalabama, the daughter of Ena. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheron. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated the Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masreka reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth of the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Achor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau, and his wife was Mehedabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mehezab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names the chiefs Timna, Alva, Jetheth, Ohalabama, Ella, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is, Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. We did it. Very well and good. What are we to make of this? Well, the way I see it, it is a fitting bow on Esau's pursuit of worldly gain. He has the wives, the land, the kids, and now the power. Well, maybe not himself, but his, his people, his nation, This list of Seir's descendants has the effect of proving that that Esau is not walking into empty land unopposed. The lord of this land, Seir, has seven sons and 20 grandsons, more than Esau. And this is just the leading family. Look again how verse 43 ends. Seir's land is now the land of Esau's possession, the land of their possession. We learn from Moses later on as he reviews history in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 2.12, how Esau got this land. What it doesn't say here. It reads, the Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from from before them and settled in their place. That means centuries before his brother Israel, Esau had conquered the enemies possessing his land. But that's not all Esau had before his brother. Look again at the editorial comment in verse 31. Esau had kings before any king reigned over the Israelites. Edom has a nation and a kingdom by his worldly pursuits. And actually this highlights one of the themes of the passage that I have yet to mention. God's faithfulness to his promises. We have already made mention of God's promises dozens of times, mostly about, though, how Esau is walking away from them. But despite that, God is still faithful. Do you know that God promised that Esau would become a nation? Stay with me. We're going to look at a few other passages here, two that look back to what God said would happen to Esau prior to this, and one looking forward long after, highlighting God's promise and Enduring faithfulness. So first, God speaks to Rebekah of her two children before they were born in Genesis 25, 23. God says this, Two nations are in your womb, Jacob and Esau, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. So God says that, that he, Esau, will be a nation. Nations need land. And then through Isaac, God declares to Esau in Genesis 27, 39, 
Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. Well, that's a promise that Esau will dwell outside of the promised land, in contrast to the land of Jacob that has the dew and fatness. But it also is a promise that Esau will have a land. That's how Moses sees it. Again, back in Deuteronomy 2. There Moses is commanding Israel not to fight with the nation of Edom. Why? Deuteronomy 2.5 Do not contend with Edom, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on, because I have given it, Mount Seir, to Esau as a possession. Now, hundreds of years later, God is absolutely faithful to Esau and his descendants and remains faithful through many, many years. Saints, God is always faithful to his promise. No matter who the recipient is, God is faithful even to the undeserving, even to you and to me. Well, after all this, at this point in Genesis 36, it honestly seems like Esau has it all and long before his brother. It seems like his worldly pursuits have brought him everything, wives, family, land, and power. And that's the danger of worldliness. It can deliver. It seems that Esau has found the shortcut to blessing while his brother Israel is stuck taking the long way round. Friends, if you are willing to compromise your values, you will get ahead in this fallen world. If you adopt the values of this world, you will get what the world finds valuable. And it is easy to be envious of the worldly. Because they seem to have it all. Possessions, power, with ease and comfort. You might be tempted too to take the same shortcuts to get what you want in life. Or even only to make life a bit easier. To get relief from the mocking and ostracizing that we bear as Christians. You will find that that worldly greatness springs up faster than spiritual greatness as it did for Esau. But it is the difference between the growth of a dandelion and an oak. Sure, you might see the flower in just a few weeks, but it is quickly gone just with a gust of wind. In the end, worldly prosperity is a dead end. It is gone even more quickly Then it comes in a moment taken from us. Yes, it might last a lifetime, but even our lives are here today, and who knows if not gone tomorrow. Church, do not be deceived by the deceit of worldly gain. It may look bright in the lights today, but it is gone tomorrow. And this requires an eternal perspective to see beyond this world to the world to come. It, I think, requires the perspective, it seems, that Jacob had in our final point, heavenly prosperity. Our fifth point, heavenly prosperity in 37.1. In fact, if you look at verse 2, you can see that Moses begins a a new generation of list there. So I think 37.1 belongs with the chapter above. His last thought as he contrasts the worldly pursuit of Esau's to Jacob. So read this last verse of our study with me. Chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Our attention at last is brought back to Jacob, the one through whom the promises of God will come. He has his four wives, twelve sons, back in the land of his father and grandfather, the land owned by another tribe of Canaan. It is not the land of his possession, 
It is occupied by the Canaanites and will be for hundreds of years. There are no kings to speak of here in verse 1. In fact, his family will sooner be subjugated to foreign kings as slaves in Egypt than have a king of their own. On the cover, it seems like Esau's choices are paying off. But to the eyes of faith, it is better to be a sojourner like his father and his father before him in this world than to call it home. Jacob has the prosperity of dwelling with God and to walk with Him. This world, 1 John 2.17 says, is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In the final accounting, anyone who invests in this world will find that it will soon all pass away. This market is guaranteed to crash. It is rather the one who does the will of God who abides forever. Like Jacob, remaining in the land he is to inherit. The truth is that that everything in this world without God amounts to nothing, but God with nothing else is everything. The whole world compared to the the surpassing, the infinite worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, is nothing. What Jesus offers you is not comfort, not riches in this world. In fact, it is likely the opposite. But He does offer reconciliation with the greatest treasure in the universe, the person of our triune God. It is to know and love that which is loveliest in all of the world. It is better than than wives and families, than homes and power. It is God himself forever in the world to come. And this, he of course offers without price. Because there is nothing valuable enough in the world to exchange for it. It is free simply by trusting in His death for your sins. Because God is good, He cannot tolerate even the slightest evil, the evil of our twisted love for the world above God. In order to be acceptable to our Father, Jesus Christ willingly sacrificed His life, suffering the divine retribution our sins deserve, so that we can be forgiven by faith not by works. And the glorious good news is that this is for all, even for the people of Edom. One of the beauties of the full testimony of Scripture is that that Edom is welcomed back to be a part of Christ's kingdom after all. One of the last prophets, Amos, predicts this day in Amos 9, 11, and 12. There, through Amos, God says, In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. The fallen booth of David refers to David's house, his dynasty, God is promising to send a Davidic king who will repair his kingdom and to extend it so that it includes even the remnant of Edom. Edom, who was the continual enemy of Israel. But even this remnant of their people, along with all nations, Amos says, will be a part of this new kingdom of Christ. Despite Esau's worldly rejection of God's promises, Edom is no longer excluded from them in Christ. God's grace in Christ is greater than Esau's sins. You can be removed from the dead-end branch of Esau's line and grafted into the, the fruitful vine, full of life in Christ. If you're here today 
and you do not know the treasure greater than all the world can offer, it is for you too. It is for all people. You can receive this priceless gift better than the whole world offered to all people simply by acknowledging your need and His sufficiency. Brothers and sisters, I return to the question we started with. Where? Where is it that we can find true blessing? The source of blessing forever is not found in the things of the world. What was created good can never replace what created good in the first place. The offers of worldliness are a dead end, disappearing even quicker than they come. Like Jacob, we walk by faith, seeking what is to come and not by sight. The true source of blessing forever is found only by faith in Jesus Christ. So saints of God, let's seek our blessings in Him. In this world and in the world to come, let's fix our eyes on Him, our soul's reward. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we hear the call of our world to turn away from the promises that you give us to seek our blessing, our fulfillment, our happiness in the things of this world. Oh, Father, I pray this morning that you would give us eyes of faith, that we would walk seeing him who is our soul's reward, a reward that far surpasses all this world can offer. Father, we pray that you would show to our hearts this morning by your spirit the beauties of the supreme worth of our treasure, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray you would give us this faith in his name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in a moment we will have a, an opportunity to respond to God's word in worship through song. But I would invite you to spend the next moment considering what it is God offers you in Christ, that it surpasses all the treasures this world offers. Please observe a moment of silent reflection. <laughs>